politics. Good afternoon out there in Radio Land. It's Tuesday, which means it is time for the best political talk show you've never heard of. It is Backroom Politics live and in person from the National Press Club here in Washington, D.C., two blocks from what we know as the White House, the center of the free world government. Well, at least it's Donald Trump's residence. Joining me as they do every Tuesday, to my left, ironically, he is the former Undersecretary of Commerce who served at last count under four presidents, a longtime Senate staffer, a longtime Washington insider. He's the man we know as the Honorable Alan Moore. Hello, Alan. Hello, Justin. And to my right, where he should be, he is a retired one-star admiral from your United States Navy. We all know him as Admiral Ken Caronine. Admiral Ken, how you doing? Justin, how are you? Uh, it's good to have everybody back home here at the Press Club. Glad to have the Press Club uh, bring welcome us back with open arms, but obviously we have a lot to talk about. Um, so in case you saw the headline for the show today, we've got a lot to talk about, but yes, I didn't mention it in the headline, we will talk about Russia. There is Russia news. Anyway, let's, let's talk about the big breaking news coming out of Washington, coming off the Hill. Uh, for those of you who have not seen it, uh, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell has declared pretty much the GOP health care on life support. He has yet postponed another, uh, another vote. After at last count, eight GOP senators would say that they would not support it. And then today, when the majority leader said he would just get ready and stand up a repeal-only bill, two Republicans came out, pretty much killing it in situ. Uh, Alan Moore, this has got to be not only a big blow for the president's agenda, but this has got to be a big blow for the GOP as a whole on the Hill. It's hard to know what what to call it because this has all been so obvious and apparent for weeks. Um, It it amuses me when they say that the White House was blindsided yesterday when two more senators said they would not vote for the replacement package, Um, uh, the alternative that Republicans had been working on for so long to get together. how could they be that surprised when many of us, <laughs> and it doesn't take a genius to sort of figure out the politics here and the policy and this weird intersection and the, the, the greatly disparate interests of so many Republican senators to realize you really almost certainly cannot get there from here. So he, he responded with the, what, when it became clear that he couldn't get the 50, there were four Republicans who said for certain that they would not support this uh, alternative and there are no Democrats, suddenly the ability to get 50 went away, at which point uh, Senator McConnell announced that his intention would be to seek a repeal-only bill, a repeal that would take effect in two years, putting a lot of pressure on the Congress um, to come up with a replacement during that time frame, a very controversial and risky move um, but within 24 hours, uh, the, there are other Republicans who said, nope, they're not going to vote for that. We saw a lot of what we would consider the moderate Republicans, uh, the Susan Collins of Maine, for example, who were kind of the lead charger in taking away some of the GOP steam on this health care bill. I, what's hard to really gauge right now is, does that hurt her? And people like Ben Sass, uh, and then even the right right wingers like 
uh, like Mike Lee. Does this hurt them at all in coming out against this? I, I think it's too early to tell. Um, so I think quite quite logically, um, those people that you mentioned recognize that there's a huge swath of people in this country who are going to be negatively impacted by this bill as it stood, and even more negatively impacted by the president's uh, uh, backup plan was to just let it fail. And I think it's going to be a balance between whether those folks realize uh, the people who are going to suffer realize that the that the, uh, the moderates in Congress who are who are who are holding back, saying, you know what, they're trying to protect you, whether they recognize that or but, not. But it's not just the moderates. But, but whether they, whether those recognize that or not, they they, uh, they are part of that core group that seems to blinding that the president uh, that the president wants. Uh, I, I think it's too early to tell. But but Alan Moore, I guess that's the question. Is this has brought together some strange bedfellows. When we see Mike Lee in the same voting column as Susan Collins on this, that is a very broad spectrum. How do they reconcile it, and are are each of them going to feel any backlash from the two? Well, opinions? okay, okay. So the, the the I mean, the reasons are different. The reasons are completely and totally different. Right, but it still gets the, the same effect. The Rand Pauls, who's been there from the beginning, right. joined by Mike Lee, were, have said it does not go far enough. This is not a true repeal. This is Obamacare light. That's not what we said we wanted. That's not what we need. I refuse to vote for that. Susan Collins' complaint, joined by Kansas Senator Jerry Moran, was basically saying, we do not know what we are doing. We need to have hearings. We need to have a considered process. We need to fully and better understand the implications of this. We need to wait for CBO scoring. We should have hearings and so on. Now, that's, that, that's typically referred to as the moderate position, um, but there are many senators who have kept their heads down waiting to see what was going to happen, but that line of argument resonates with many of them. Uh, oftentimes, those people have gone back to their states, had town hall meetings that are filled with people who say, for the first time in my life, I've been able to get health care. I've been able to get health care for my, for my child, for my sick relative. And now that's all at risk. You're going to take that away. How do you justify that? That's not why I okay, said but, you but here's, here's, the, here's, the bigger, here's the bigger thing that strikes me is about literally hour or two after they realized that this thing was dead on arrival, Mitch McConnell goes to the media and says, oh, we're just going to have a repeal only, which would be worse, and that dies immediately. I mean, is, this, is Mitch McConnell living in a false reality here? I think, I think what they're trying to do... Because it looks desperate. I think, well, it is. I think it's a very desperate attempt to do what they said they were going to do for the last eight years, and that was repeal Obamacare. Repeal and replace only became, you know, uh, in vogue in, in the last year or so. But, but, but since the first days of Obamacare, the Republican Party uh, has basically set out to repeal Obamacare. The problem with it now is that people have used it, and people like it. <clears throat> For all of its ills, you know, there's probably a good 25 or 30% of people who don't like it, and other counterbalancing people who are getting, getting, as Alan pointed out, insurance and health care for the very first time. And they're stuck, pardon me, they're stuck between the rock and the hard place. Which is fine, but, but again, the desperation, my question now becomes is who's driving this? this Mitch McConnell seems to me 
to be a lot more politically savvy than what he's attempted to do. Is this being driven by no, Trump? No, no, no. I think you're, you're misreading uh, uh, the, uh, what he's actually trying to do here. There's nothing stupid or desperate in what he's trying to do. He is trying to continue to give those members uh, in his ranks who want a vote to repeal the, the potential opportunity to do that. So he, he, he basically said, we're not going to go out and have a vote on a replacement bill, a repeal and rep- with, with a replacement bill that we know is going to fail. There, there's no, no, nothing good about, about doing it that way. And there's very few in his ranks who would say, do it anyway. So he said, there has been a movement. There's been discussion for many months. Let's repeal and then replace it later. Um, that was rejected months ago for, for good reasons, because you get into limbo land and insurers don't know what to do. Individuals don't know what to do. It's kind of a game of chicken um, in, the, in the Congress. Those, those chicken games tend not to work out very well. But he's trying to, but he's trying to recharge an empty shell. He's not trying to recharge it. He's simply saying, okay, if we can't repeal and replace, there's people who's talking about just repeal. Rand Paul's talking about that. The president's talking about, we'll, we'll have that vote. You can have that vote, knowing that the votes were almost certainly not there. Does Chuck, does Chuck, Schumer, does Chuck Schumer now have a point in saying, look, you've played this game. You've gone down this road. You've seen what happens. You can't even get your own people together. It's now time to work with us, and let's take this seriously. Well, the, the president is, is much said that today and when he basically said, let it fail. I am not going to own this. This is going to be on the Democrats, which is a crazy thing to say. It's a stupid thing to say. It's a, it's a crazy thing to say, but the fact of the matter is, I think what it did, though, in those, in those words is that he, he basically gave, uh, gave Chuck Schumer a, a leg to stand on with, with the comments, the fact that, you know, here we are. You guys have been talking this for so long. We're, we're put up or shut up. You know, and from the lay, from the lay person's uh, perspective, you know, for, for, for people who don't live inside of Washington, D.C., I can tell you it makes our party look inept makes us look stupid, and it makes us look like all we've been doing is just saying no, no, no without a real plan for the better part of the last eight years. And it's embarrassing. Alan, the admiral's got a point. I mean, when you you look at middle America, people that put Trump in there, the people that these GOP health bills hurt are the people that put Trump into place. How do they they rectify this little gap? Well – Let's acknowledge that there there are a lot of uh, a lot of uh, low information Trump voters who who had this notion that that so-called Obamacare was overreach by the federal government. It was going to be highly disruptive. It was a horrendous rollout. It was disruptive. A lot of people's costs have gone up. A lot of people uh, on paper have insurance, but but have trouble affording. The, the co-pays and the, and the co-insurance uh, and the deductibles. Um, the, I mean, in the meantime, the, this has been the law of the land for seven years. We've, we've made adjustments to it. 31 states have expanded their, Medi- their Medicaid population. That's health care for the poor. Uh, not all states have, but many states have. And, and a lot of people have benefited from that. No one but no one is thinking or talking about how this all gets paid for and whether the pay for makes any sense at all. Um, and, and that's, you know, I made reference to that a week ago. We'll, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll talk about that at a, at a different point, but, but the, 
all McConnell is doing now is going through the motions, going through the sequence of events when he realizes that this effort to create a replacement succeed. He's he's spent an enormous amount of time trying to find something that would work. It failed. So then the question is, does he simply say, we're done, we're all over, or does he pivot, as he did, and say, let's have a straight up and down repeal. Some of you want that. Let's see what's going to happen. What we now know is that won't succeed either. Maybe they'll have that vote. That's something that the whole caucus will decide whether they want to go on the record of repeal or not. And, and, uh, and that every member up there has his or her own political calculus. You asked about the implications. There are people who are at risk of being challenged in a primary the next time they're up if it's seen that they're not sufficiently pure. There are others who but get... I, but, okay, but, but again, I still go back to the question of, you know, the, the people that I look at as having political courage in this are the, you know, the Lisa Murkowskis of Alaska, the Susan Collinses, the Ben Sasses, the... Uh, I would even go so far as to say, look, even though it's far right of my opinion, you look at Rand Paul, you look at Mike Lee, they are standing on principle. They're doing this for their reasons, and they've never come off that platform. The question then becomes is, even though they're both opposite each other, are they in, are they in trouble by going against the White House, the president, in his vindictive nature on this. Well, as Ken said, we don't know, and it may be a problem for a couple of people. It may be the salvation for others. I've heard Susan Collins talk about all the people, when she appears in public in Maine, thanking her for resisting the replacement effort. I can't see that her position is going to hurt her in Maine. I'm guessing that Mike Lee in Utah might have a problem. Well, I don't know that he's going to have a problem. Um, It's just that it's a totally different constituency that he faces. And if he, if he knows he's got a large cadre of people who say, you said you were going to try to replace or to repeal. I want you to repeal. And, and I'm going to be mad if you guys fail, but I'm not going to be mad at you. I'm going to be mad at everybody else. Support repeal. Joining us, after his own stint in Russian political espionage school, he is the man that is the bar certified attorney in the District of Columbia and the great state of Maryland. He is the man that we know as Dan Littner Esquire. Welcome back live, Dan. I'm glad to be here, uh, Justin. So uh, glad to have you back. After being allowed out of the gulags, and uh, it's, it, it's good to be here. It is good to be here. Dan, obviously, uh, the, the GOP healthcare initiative seems to be dead on arrival, if not on life support. Uh, your guy, Chuck Schumer, came out because, again, there was a camera and Chuck Schumer's in front of it. Uh, he made very valid points saying, look, you know, you've done your, you know, playtime's over. So you've had seven years, couldn't get it done. You've had six months, couldn't get it done. Reach out to us. We want to work with you. Is Chuck Schumer putting his neck out on the line or is he the one showing real political courage right now? Uh, I wouldn't necessarily call it political courage. Of all the people that were rattled off, I would say uh, Ben Sass is the only one that I would actually put in the line of actual political courage. Everyone else was actually just 
basis of their political, their their local politics. I mean, even Mike Lee, whose surprise win in the Republican primary to knock off a sitting Republican senator, uh, he's got his own issues based on the constituency in Utah. Uh, the the more, the more radical approach to to cut back in Utah would have some pretty detrimental effects to his state. So he can grandstand all he wants, but his, the actual legislation going through would not serve him well. So Sass is the only person who seems to have been actually stepping out on a limb going, listen, if we want to talk about cutting, raising revenue and cutting costs, then why are all these tax cuts in here? Let's, let, let's segregate one from the other. It seems like rational a rational argument that goes beyond just the politics on the ground. Well, let me just ask this, though, Alan, because Dan reminds me of one point is we've heard a lot of the Republicans saying my constituency are up at arms. They want Obamacare gone. They want That's not the vision that we're getting in the media today. At the same time, are we going to find well, that Obamacare has never been more popular what, before than it is now? Well, following on, and going down that line, it, it strikes me is is the argument that the GOP has been putting out that the constituents are at arms about repealing and replacing Obamacare. Are we going to peel back that onion and see that it's just literally smoke and mirrors? Well, I think <laughs> it's not like are we going to? It has been exposed. We we see polling data as 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 Dan suggests, that Obamacare is now more popular than it ever has been, and the alternative that has been discussed enjoys the support of something like 23 or 24% of the people. I would dare say many of them, we don't know, have no idea what it does. It's more the, it's, it's the residue of overreach by the federal government associated with President Obama Get it out of here. I don't know exactly what it does, but I hate the fact that we're required to do things and it's a giant expensive mess and and, and repeal it. So that's, I mean, that's now has an appeal to about 24 percent of the people, right. some of whom, you know, there are, I don't mean to denigrate all of those as ignorant who who are supportive of the alternative. You saw no Republican senators who were out there with any high degree of enthusiasm. This was going through the motions. Now, before you get carried away patting Chuck Schumer on the back for for saying, okay, let's work together now, um, Mitch McConnell a few weeks ago said, look, if if this fails, and he (laughs) – I think he probably knew that this was likely to fail for some time. He says, if it fails, then we still have to do some things to make our health system work, and we're going to have to – pivot and figure out how to do that with the, the, the help of Democrats. This, didn't, this is not a new idea. It's just that there was no stomach among any Democrats to associate, associate themselves with something called repeal. And well, yeah, 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 yeah. The, the lack of committee hearings, the private group in both the House and Senate that drafted the legislation this was not exactly an open process that was but, but that theoretically their members pin would get them access to if things were held in community but are you telling, are you trying floor. to tell me that there are any associate themselves with something called repeal and replace answer no it was knee jerk it was automatic 
it's not that people don't I'll, know I'll, what's, I'll, what is in this I'll, bill. All things that can happen in, in the committee processes, things can get renamed that well, can also garner additional months support. Ago, I said, what you need to do is find a middle ground that works, and the Republicans call it can call it repeal and replace, and the Democrats can call it reforming Obamacare, fixing Obamacare, and we can rally around. The, the name is not that important. The substance is what is critical. And and, and, and and the one thing we've got to be cognizant here of is is the the, the rhetoric, although stifling in the Senate, the real crap cloud of rhetoric is the one coming out of the House, and the House has got the bigger problem. Whatever we do in the Senate still has to get through House approval, which looks like that is that might as well be Mount Kilimanjaro politically. Well, and, and I think the House would have gone along with anything that passed the Senate. Well, and that's, you think so? I do. Why? I totally do. Because well, they wanted to get this behind them. They're all fearful that their earlier vote on the more controversial measure, their mean, the, their mean the, bill, the President Trump, after congratulating <laughs> them at the White House, then characterized as mean. It was like, let us out of this. Yeah. We're, we'll vote for something. He but the Senate ball on the 45 and called it mean. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, but then. I mean, we, we're coming into a bizarre world politically here where you have a House led by Speaker Paul Ryan, who was like, Mr. President, we got this football. We're going to carry this down. We're going to spike the football. They had the huge victory lap down at the White House, and then to come back and throw every Republican member that voted for that bill, throw them literally under a big American-made bus, which was parked out, by the way, in the backyard yesterday at the White House. To throw them under that big political bus is creating a really awkward situation for the party as a whole. Well, but, I mean, that's the full nature of that the whole thing is not being taken seriously. I mean, one of the numbers that came out that I honestly did not know, Alan may have known that as Ken, but that a... a as opposed to me, I don't know this stuff. I mean, <laughs> no, but the, 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 the number of senior citizens that are in assisted living that are on Medicaid... That that was a surprisingly large number that I had no idea. I assumed, well, it, was, I, I assumed, it, I assumed it was Medicare. So in the 80s, but, uh, but but it is a majority. It is it is a and for those for those districts, even those safe Republican districts, I'm comfortable saying one thing is true of most of them: they ain't young. Young districts tend to be Democratic leaning, and so this is saving them from themselves because one of those things was. Anybody ever associated with politics ever knows they vote and they show up. So that is the kind of thing that the policy, no, nobody quite knowing what they really voted for, it getting going to action could have been a disaster for those same communities. Admiral Ken, I couldn't agree more. Uh, I, I think, like I said before, I think people like uh, Susan Collins and Ben Sass looked at the uh, the demographics of the constituency. And, you know, and I think moral courage uh, is important, but I think it's also reality, the fact that if I don't look out for the people who vote for me, I'm not going to get reelected. And, and I, what I don't understand is why a good number of the rest of the members of the party have not come to the realization that a huge number, a huge number of the people that voted for President Trump and, and reelected some of them last cycle are going to be directly and negatively impacted by a repeal and definitely a replacement. Well, that's the problem. It's the real politics. Yeah. The people who show up in the primaries are a different creature than the people who show up in the general. Absolutely. And the aforementioned Mike Lee, who got his seat, he won the party. 
Bob Bennett. Who Bob Bennett, who, who was by no stretch of the imagination a liberal senator. It, it was a shocker that everybody else is like, who are these? This is an offshoot of the Tea Party folks. Is, who are these people and how do they have much power? Bottom line, but the bottom line here is, I mean, when you look at places like Arizona, does this affect Jeff Flake? When you look at Florida, does this affect Rubio? Does this affect others in the Sun Belt retiree states? Well, here's the thing. These guys were caught between a rock and a hard place. So, um, it, it, of their own creation. Of, well, of sort of the, 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 the politics and policies of our day. Um, uh, they, they, they utilized Obamacare and its unpopularity to gain majorities in both houses. They, they, the, the unpopularity of Obamacare, forget the details. Um, the death panels, you know, those are death, they're all sorts wonders. of really death panels. No, but really? I mean, that, that really? was part of, that was part of, that was part of what retook the house. Federal, federal mandates, um, uh, and, and, and so on, um, and, and, a, and a total part, party line partisan uh, bill um, that, that passed eight years ago um, is, is, has been a vote generator, a support generator for Republicans. Now they're, they, they have majorities in both houses. They've got to figure out, can they deliver on the, the loose, promise to repeal and the, the scores of votes to repeal um, that have occurred in the intervening time, even though we now have seven years, close to seven years of people relying on and utilizing this program. If you are a Republican and you vote to repeal, you're going to have enormous numbers of angry, energized people who will oppose you the next time out. This is what House members are worried about. If you don't vote for repeal, you are vulnerable to a challenge inside your own party um, uh, from, from the right or, or a lack of enthusiasm for you simply because you will be perceived as part of the same old problem. There was no, there's no easy path for very many Republicans here, they're, they're going to win and lose in their own states with these votes. So, Admiral Ken, does Mitch McConnell reach out to Chuck Schumer and the Democrats to strike a deal? No. Dan Lipner? Actually, I'd say politically, yes. It's kind of a net win for everyone. He can't. No, the reason he can, and this is, this, this is the out. So you bipartisan legislation through in, in, in regular order that goes through committee and whatnot that people can agree on. However, and this is worth noting, even for Obamacare, that had no, no Republican votes, at least in the Senate, that there, there, there were Republican amendments in the Senate that got added that are part of the legislation. Having that natural process go forward with party agreement, the ideologues on either side can both bolt and allowing them to say, I still voted against this monstrosity, they can have it both ways. And more importantly, the American people can have the fix. Like, Obamacare is not perfect. There are problems that need to be fixed. And, and okay. that's the win. The problem here is that the, the, the nature of the, 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 the dynamic between the Hill and the White House will prevent uh, Mitch McConnell. No. No, I agree with Dan. Um, okay, the, we'll see. The, it, but it's not that Mitch calls up Chuck and says, okay, let's talk. It's 
he's got a group of people, both of them do, who pay attention to the healthcare stuff. You were good at, you were good at, I, I agree with Dan. Just so. Particularly, <laughs> particularly, particularly in the finance committee, um, where there's major jurisdiction, and in the health committee, where there's also some shared jurisdiction. Um, those committees are the ones that are the committees of jurisdiction. They're the ones they would have to sit down and do the hard work, the negotiating back and forth. They would involve the, the experts from the, the what's called CMS, Centers for Medicaid and Medicare Services, at the Department of Health and Human Services. Um, you bring the people together. It's not Mitch and Chuck sitting down and cutting a deal. Well, we also want to take this thing to conference, it's, too. It's that we couldn't, we couldn't get this done, things absolutely need to be done to make our American health system work better. It's not just Obamacare. It's how the health system works. There's funding questions. There's legislation. It's not the big, broad uh, notion that it probably should be, but there are fixes that are going to have to occur, and they're going to have to be done. But let's be clear. Let, I mean, let's be clear about this. If there's going to be bipartisan interaction on any side. It's not going to be between Paul Paul Ryan and Nancy Pelosi. This, if this happens, this happens in the Senate. It happens in the Senate. Well, it starts, Absolutely, it starts in the Senate. I mean, it, it in, unless there's nothing that they pass, and then where does this go? I mean, somebody theoretically could, you know, somebody like Kevin McCarthy could stand up and say, okay, you know what? I'm going to go to the other side of the aisle, and I will work the deal. I don't think that's a possibility. I don't think Paul Ryan is going to go to Nancy Pelosi and engage the Democrats. If they're right now, we have nothing to conference on. Yeah. Right now, we have nothing to even talk about right. as far as legislation being passed. The bottom line here is somebody at some point is going to have to break the glass and say, "Okay." Right. And, and the catch is uh, the House is obviously a different creature than the Senate, but the ideologues no longer have the momentum in the Senate. People who are being thoughtful, their voices are being heard. Even those voices I disagree with, Rand Paul's analysis comparing LASIK surgery to any other kind of surgery drives me insane. However, people who are actually trying to be thoughtful on it, now those folks are front and center. Ted Cruz's thing that got knocked out. And I'm sure Alan takes great joy in the, you know, <laughs> there's a lot of us that take great joy that, that knowing that Mitch McConnell's like, Cruz, this is your idea. Sure. Let's put put it out there and having and it publicly smacked down and having it his, be his move. Yeah. I'm sure everyone is taking joy saying you're not so running this wait, party. Let me, let me, let me see if I get this straight. Let me see if I hear you correctly. What you're telling me right now is that gang of eight of Lindsey Graham, uh, John McCain, Lisa Murkowski, uh, Susan Collins, Ben Sass, even Rand Paul and Mike Lee. These are the guys that are going to be the voice of reason. No, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not putting Mike Lee in that category. However, I would I would put Marco Rubio potentially in that category. Uh, but, you got Lamar Alexander is Lamar the Alexander chairman of the health committee. You got Orrin Hatch, who's the chairman of the finance committee. Those are guys who have been around who have worked on bipartisan solutions before, they will work across the aisle in their committees. But and and, and, and here's what, what you hear is you still hear this nonsense from the White House. Well, we'll just let Obamacare fail. Here's the problem with that. One, 
it's not failing in that way. It's not going to fail in some cataclysmic way. It's just going to be a constant drain on resources, one. Two, the Trump administration and the Republicans now own health care in America. It goes with the territory of having the presidency and the Congress. So yeah, you can't just administratively, the president, the, the, the administratively, the executive branch has done some things to destabilize Obamacare. The but there's limits to yeah, there, what there they are can limits, do. But, but, but especially in, in the, this is the irony of the, of the argument as a whole, the places where it's most unstable are most likely red areas. So these destabilization measures that have gone on into place, though the 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 lack of enforcement of mandates. what gets me thing. about this, Dan. Those rural hospitals, those are the places. And by the way, those aren't necessarily liberal interests. These people. I mean, those, you, I was going to say, have you been through Appalachia lately? No, no. Like exactly. That's my, that's my point. But, but here's However, the thing: at a certain point, doctors, nurses, and X-ray technicians all got to get paid in order for the lights but, to but stay he, on. But here's the thing: yeah, is, and I want to give I want to give Admiral Ken the last word on this because I go to break. But here's here's the funny thing about this is. It would have made great political sense if we had gone through – we being the Republicans had gone through this kabuki dance saying, you know what, we're going to let – you know what, you wanted it, you asked for it, you got it. We're going to let Obamacare die a slow, miserable death under its own weight. We're going to sit back and watch. The Democrats don't want to play. I got problems with my opponent. Just let it die. And then everybody go on and do other business of governing. If they had just left us alone and but not you, touch you, it, that wouldn't you, have been the case. You show incredible ignorance about the world of politics and how politicians feel about their duties and responsibilities to people back home. They are not going to stand idly by. Sorry, thousands of people who are no longer able to this afford is insurance. Spin. This is a matter of. I, I, I heard you. I heard you. I cannot fight. The you know if you're if you're of the Trump side of the house saying I cannot fight the people like the John McCain's the Lindsey Graham's the Lisa Murkowski's and the Susan yeah, Collins's I did that fight I fought for you but you know what let it die you still have health care nobody's nobody's ripping away your health care people in public elected office are not the kind of sorts that look at something and go not my problem it's not what draws them to it and it's not how they sustain themselves and when they go back home they are constantly reminded of that lest they forget for a moment well they lest they forget also the fact that they are at people that are literally supporting this repeal only action in the Senate, they're going to have to go back, some of them in some really rural areas that rely on funds that come out of CMMS, they're going to have to go back and justify the fact that, hey, wait a minute, why do I have a $150,000 bill for my broken leg last year? Yeah, let me say about the whole notion, remember what they're saying about repeal is repeal it now to go into effect in two years. Two years. Keep keep the pressure on, keep the pressure on, keep the pressure on. Most people think that's a bad idea. It's a horrible idea. A risk not worth because taking. If I'm, if I'm that's Aetna, why it's been rejected. The before. AMA, the hospital so, yeah. And by the way, if I'm Aetna and you repeal it, I'm going to say, well, how am I going to get paid? No, no, but all Guess I'm saying what? is I'm from a political standpoint, I hear somebody I hear can defend his vote or her vote to repeal because they say, this isn't repeal forever. This is 
get put the pressure back on us to get this thing right. done. Right. Admiral Ken, last word. Last word. So I, I, I go back to my, my basic premise, and I think we talked around the fact. You asked the question whether Mitch McConnell goes to um, uh, Chuck Schumer, Schumer. And, and I said no. But we all basically, you know, but we all came back to the fact that they're that they're guys, the people that are that are that, are, that they represent are going to work behind the scenes to get this done. Publicly, I will say I stand by it. McConnell will not go to Schumer. What happens behind the scenes is just, well, like, you know, what happens behind. Yeah. Hey, hang on, I, I gave you your time, Alan. I mean, just for sake here. Okay. The fact of the matter is, you're splitting hairs, man. No, I'm not. No, yeah, I'm not. Are. You know what? Because this 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 goes this this shows that we're not paying attention to what's gone on in Washington, D.C. since Donald Trump came in office. Donald Trump will absolutely eviscerate uh, Mitch McConnell if he goes to Chuck Schumer. Yeah. Yeah. Like, it, it, it's worth noting, like, Jeff no, Blake has, has drawn the, the, the uh, ire of, of Donald White Trump and for suggesting he's going to fund yeah. an opponent, which is insane for the White House to do. And, and as I said, look, I agree with Dan that they're going to work together. It won't be McConnell calling up Chuck and say, hey, Chuck, let's work on this. They don't nor, like nor, nor will there, be, like any, there will but, be any version of that. So all, all, the point that I'm trying to make here is there will be a visible effort. <laughs> there will be a – it's not going to be that – Okay. Anyway, that being the case, first of all, I'm getting you a fidget spinner for Christmas. You fidget more than any human being I've seen <laughs> in the studio ever. I you picked up everything except the table, the computer, and the microphone. I think you might, you guys must have that effect on me. <laughs> <laughs> we're gonna take a break. When we come back, we're gonna talk. Uh, the uh, markets are up. Wall Street's up. Record highs. Is the Trump bump real, or is it a bubble? We're going to talk about that when we come back. This is Backroom Politics Live from the National Press Club in the heart of Washington, D.C. We'll be back in two minutes. Stay with us.
backroom politics. And we're back here live at the National Press Club here in Washington, D.C. This is the best political talk show you've never heard of. It is Backroom Politics, live on Blog Talk Radio. We should change it to the furthest backroom. I think we are in the furthest backroom of the press club. We, we are in the backest of backrooms in the National Press Club here on the 14th floor <laughs> studios of the National Press Club. Uh, anyway, I want to talk a little bit about uh, the Trump bump. Uh, in case you haven't noticed, Wall Street has taken a liking to the Trump administration. Apparently, Wall Street likes hitting record numbers, as does other financial markets around the globe. Uh, the big question is that many economists are referring to it as a Trump bump. Uh, it is, uh, we're seeing interest rates stay low. We're seeing record profits. We're seeing record highs in the markets. And the question is, is the Trump bump real? I'm going to start with you, Admiral Ken. Is, 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 is this a Trump's economic policies and him being a private business owner just coming out and saying, wow, we're behind you, or is this a hiccup? Their economic policy? <laughs> just, we'll get, you know, I don't even know why I'm here. <laughs> <laughs> I open my mouth and everybody else's voice comes out. Everybody else is talking for Ken today. Um, I, I, honestly, I don't know. Uh, you know, I, I, I will tell you, Ratner, Ratner says that it's not real. Uh, Ratner cites that uh, you know, Ratner from Ratner, MSNBC. Uh, and, and former former Treasury Secretary, right. uh, Treasury official. Official, sorry. Uh, Ratner says that uh, um, uh, the economists, uh, most economists, are dubious of what's going on. Retail sales are down, um, and that uh, this is this is a bubble. Uh, I don't know. I, I, all I do know is that uh, the four one k is kicking butt right now. Uh, compared to what it was doing just a few months ago, uh, stocks are doing pretty good too for me personally. Um, but you know, I, you know, if, if you're if you're someone who pays attention to this stuff, uh, my my, I'm, my the advice that I've gotten is pay attention when things start looking like they're going to slide, move. Or Alan Moore, uh, you're a former Undersecretary of Commerce. You get the economy after being years in Washington. It, it strikes me that. There's almost a false sense of security that everybody's playing around with this, the current economic high that we're riding. You know, Admiral Ken brought up the fact that, you know, retail sales are down. At the same time, we just saw new numbers come out as of today. The Target has seen its best quarter in about a year and a half. Are we, are we missing something or could this be real? Well, I don't know what this be real. First of all, the market's up, as as Ken uh, accurately points out, and people uh, people who who are in the market, which is a whole lot more people than we think, because everybody has a pension plan, a K plan, who has kids at a university with a big endowment. Um, the 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 benefits of uh, a rising stock market are far more widespread than just this notion of those lucky enough to own stocks. Um, having said that, I don't think the market is responding to uh, the, 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 the focused, coherent, and effective economic policy of this administration. <laughs> this is a this is there was pent up uh, uh, 
Uh, They're calling this a coincidence need. because the White House thinks it's directly. Well, of course, they call it the Trump bump, and they want to take credit for it. And let's not be surprised that a White House wants to take credit for good economic good. news good and, and, and doesn't want to be blamed for when things go south, which they do, which they always do. Um, I think this is, a, for, for, for President Trump, a, a remarkable coincidence. There's nothing that's happening legislatively that uh, should give anybody any great encouragement about the, the economic environment. It reminds us, though, how detached much of the economy is from the, the, the day-to-day, week-to-week dynamics. How do you respond to some conservative economists that say that it's not so much Trump, it's just that the Obama administration was so stifling to business and economic growth <laughs> That we're now that now we've basically taken the cork off the bottle and the gas is now released. Well, we haven't taken much of a cork off of anything. I mean, I one, one can certainly say that that uh, I think make an argument that that uh, make the case that that the Obama administration was was very active on the regulatory side and that it over regulatory perhaps. That, that, sure, and that and that and that that had a uh, a, a limiting effect, but. All of those things don't get undone in 20 minutes or in six months. Um, it's not as though we've, we have wiped out the regulatory state. We won't do as much regulating going forward. It, 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 and I hate using such general terms as, as we have done. I think maybe the market thinks, oh, good, we're not going to be over-regulating as much. But what they really want is re-regulation or deregulation, and that's a lot harder to do. That isn't happening now. You hear some of the big, the big banks, the um, the, the heads of big banks saying, "We're doing well. We're making a lot of money, but oh my God, we could do so much more good for this economy if we could get out from under some of the regulatory burdens that were imposed on us after 2008." Now that's very controversial. It's not going to happen overnight. It's if it if if it happens at all. But that doesn't explain why the market has done so well. You talk about Target having a great year. We'll share that with Kmart, Sears, and J.C. Penney. Um, and and don't tell Amazon. I mean, there's an amazing amount of disruption and activity going on out there in the marketplace. But when you look at measures of of, of consumer confidence or what the economists think, there's, there's uh, as, 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 as Ken mentioned, um, reason to be paying close attention. But, I mean, it, it, this is what should scare Americans on a whole, Admiral Ken, is the idea that it just takes one small hiccup for this entire bubble to burst, which I, I still think it's a bubble. I still think that it takes you know somebody unraveling it an enron a it could be another uh failure it could be something they, it, it, i just get the impression i, I don't think the i agree with that. that they all pass the stress test assuming you believe the stress tests are credible which this, is another this, issue this is the first time they all did talk about the way yeah. <laughs> yeah. i'm so glad that, i'm so glad i asked admiral Tim these questions go ahead Dave. i'll get to you go ahead i'll get to you admiral ken no 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 i, no, no, I want to hear I want to 
sure I agree with your premise. What? That it, that it that it takes just one 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 company unraveling to take the whole thing out again. I I think that part of the regulation that took theoretically, place, I mean, that theoretically took place, that took place after two thousand eight two thousand nine. But if you look back at theoretically, it was it was Lehman Brothers that was the poke of the hole that let the band the yeah, uh, but I, I, but I think no. Bear Stearns first, no, right? no, no, was it Bear Stearns first or it Lehman doesn't Brothers? matter it, it, it was just, the whole yeah, industry falling absolutely. apart it yeah. was built it, it was uh, built, the, on garbage. built on garbage and that a lot of that has been flushed out so I, I am a lot more confident about the resilience of the of the market uh, in the wake of somebody falling apart like one of the companies you mentioned um, and and, and the, the market saying, okay, you know what? Too bad for you. We'll we'll we'll, we'll siphon off your resources. We'll absorb you, and we'll move on from there. I don't believe it, that, that we're going to be surprised anymore. So the first point is this is not the year one AT AT standing for after Trump. Uh, this is in fact a continuation of the growth of the market that that after the economic collapse of the of the late 2000s. The market has been growing consistently throughout the Obama administration to now. I actually will differ with Alan. I think there is a slight Trump bump because of the giddiness of the the irrational exuberance. Ding dong, the regulatory witch is dead. So, so I, but I put it in the, the irrational exuberance uh, that uh, former uh, Fed Chair Alan Greenspan referred to during one of the tech bubbles, that folks are expecting all this stuff to happen overnight when not quite realizing this stuff is hard work. It, it does not just happen. You need real people to sit there and go through this stuff. Regulations, while they may exist longer than necessary, do not evaporate just tomorrow because you'd like them to. There are after effects, and that stuff needs to be taken seriously. But, Alan, you know, when we, when we look at this, one would think that this would be the expectation after passage of tax reform or, or the revamp of health care or something dramatic in economic policy, and we haven't seen that. No, it, which is why I'm intrigued with Dan's notion that that the market is still riding high on these inflated expectations or from the Trump administration, <laughs> where, where, in fact, I think that, that most of Wall Street is horrified. People who make investment decisions are horrified at what's, what is going on. They're depressed about it. They don't believe it's going to destroy the economy. They think the economy is very strong. They're looking at, that at, at, at quarterly and semi-annual and annual results. There's a lot of, there's a lot of growth. There, there was a lot of pent-up um, economic activity kind of at the ready. The, the recovery since 2009 has been painfully slow. And it's debatable as to to why that is. But because it was so slow for so long, there was still upside potential in spite of an assessment of a president who has shown little knowledge, little curiosity, little ability to influence events. Well, and that's the real I think question. it's in spite of you, you think this economy yeah. is in a Trump bump? You think it's just a continuation? And I think it's much Trump? more a coincidence. Well, Absolutely. Well, the, the real fear factor is, and with the incompetence of this administration, which I think I'm comfortable saying we all agree to some extent they are incompetent, right. what happens when something goes wrong? What happens in North Korea is a constant conversation. If they do something that disrupts trade in that region of Asia, that will not be a self-contained issue. Um, the question is, what happens and how do they respond? Do they even have the capacity 
to respond based on just their lack of staffing and skill sets that are in the White House. Are we not dealing with a resilient economy in this instance right now? It does it, it's something like a a, a, so, a, so, a so, uh, so there's a big difference. A fight in the Korean Peninsula. There's a diff- big difference between the resilience of a financial economy when a com- when a large company goes bankrupt and when an, an, a, a region of the world goes to war. So it, it, as resilient as as resilient as the the market is, we still derive or get more than eighty percent of our goods by sea. A large interruption in um, the the flow of goods from Asia by a war or some other um, uh, uh, situation uh, would have would it could have a global effect and should. That's one of the main reasons why when people talk about going to war, you don't do it or you don't jokes about it or you don't talk about it lightly. It's right. a big damn deal it's supposed to be. Right. Alan Moore, regarding whatever economic initiatives the president's putting out, the president this week has declared it as Made in America Week and put a bunch of heavy equipment on the back uh, south lawn of the White House. But the White House is taking a bunch of heat right now for the fact that, A, uh, they're promoting their products that are largely made outside the U.S. Is, is that going to continue to be an Achilles heel for a president that believes that America, making America great again is building and manufacturing things in America? I don't know. I, I, I don't think you, you can go Or is it a red herring? Yeah, I don't think it's... It, 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 he greatly exaggerates uh, the, the impact of of trade flows and of stolen jobs and how America got taken. It, it, it is, uh, it's a convenient shorthand that, that responds to biases of, uh, of a, of a chunk of voters out there, but it, it runs into the problem of facts and, and, and reality. It's a little embarrassing the made in America when you, producing products that, <laughs> under your name that aren't made in America, although should be you know, he's, he's yeah. separated himself from uh, from those businesses. As or has, you have a daughter has, that makes stuff that's not made here. Well, she's also separated herself from, from the business. But, you know, I, I remember once uh, there, were, there was a, there were a group of, of senators who went to the White House, was in the Carter administration, talking about shoes, imported shoes. And they were from states that were shoe manufacturers, had once been major shoe manufacturers, and were were losing market share. And they went to talk about putting some restraints on shoe imports. And when one of these senators showed up at the White House and came back to talk uh, to the press, Sam Donaldson said, so, Senator, those shoes you're wearing, where are they from? Are they, they look like Gucci's. Are they Gucci's? And the senator was embarrassed to admit that they were. Now, those shoes ended up in the deep part of his closet for the rest of his time uh, as a senator. I mean, this kind of stuff is anecdotally kind of fun. It smacks of a little bit of hypocrisy. But I, I think that, that the, the problem with the president is not that, that he has produced things or sold things under his name that were made overseas. It's that the world economy has changed, and many of the jobs that we would – that he talks about bringing back will never come back. It doesn't make any sense anymore to bring a lot of these back, which doesn't mean that America can't do anything, can't make anything. There are companies like Apple who talk about 
bringing some stuff back here, not just be, not because of the political pressure, but because economically suddenly it makes this, sense. Energy is cheaper now. New, I mean, you know, under the Obama administration, we saw foreign car manufacturers open up at least three major production facilities that I can count, uh, Honda, VW, and um, Toyota. Oh, BMW and Mercedes that pre- predate? Uh, I think that might have been I mean, Bush, but regardless, they're, right, they're right. I mean, here. Regardless, I mean, you know, we, we saw that happen, and those jobs came back here. Uh, Trump makes it sound like, if it wasn't for him, this trend of manufacturing here at home goes away, and we're importing everything to Guatemala. Yeah, the problem with that is that, well, that statement is, I think the president has a, has a, uh, has a tendency to make everything sound easy, including the healthcare situation. Uh, I can think of one example in particular. Last year, I was flying down to the Carolinas, and I happened to be seated next to a woman whose job, um, and she was a state employee, she worked for the governor, to uh, find people to come and work at the new Boeing plant in the Charleston area. So it's one thing to bring manufacturing jobs or to try to bring manufacturing jobs back to America, but manufacturing jobs today don't look anything like they did uh, 40, 30 years ago when our fathers and our, and our uncles were working in those factories. It requires a special level of education, and we have already seen a fall off in STEM and STEM-related education on the part of American youth these days. So it's one thing to bring those jobs back, but we need to make sure that we've got the workforce trained to be able to do that. That takes some level of government uh, in, uh, in investment and, and some, some level of focus on the local communities. Again, this is nothing that, that we talk about in any of these discussions that we have on air is easy. And I think the problem that we have right now is a good a number of low-information voters who basically have, have fallen into that trap and say, yeah, Trump says he can do everything. It's a piece of cake, and here we go. Dan, you agree? I mean, basically, but it's also worth noting that the White House just lies. The, the 50,000 new coal jobs that supposedly were created overnight. I thought it was 45,000. Regardless, that's something close to the entire number that is that that is employed in the coal industry, industry in today. total. In total, those all did again. This is coming back to my previous point. This is not the year one AT that everything began because of Trump. It, it's just not true. And it, my big fear with all of this is what happens when something goes wrong. The test of every administration is what happens. What? When something breaks. Right, but for Alan Moore, I mean, America bought this in, in the general election. Uh, Americans. A plurality uh, of America. Okay, well, all right. For, for giggles, a plurality of Americans bought into this. Uh, are we, in fact, in danger of Americans could find there's no real substance there? This is all just a BT Barnum move and lose confidence in the economy. It, 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 the president, I guess, is the bump sustainable. The president continues to enjoy somewhere between 36 and 30 percent uh, support. Um, but ABC is, has people saying that there's a 60 percent approval in one poll that say he's doing a good job on the economy. Well. Here again, it's it's a nice shorthand to say 
at least the at least the market is up, and and one of the major devastating impacts of the of the recession of two thousand eight and nine was what it did to personal savings and to personal four hundred one k accounts and to potential pensions um, from from employers. If if that little boat that is attached to yourself and your family. Um, uh, not to mention home ownership, if that value starts to rise, that is a huge, very personal impact that causes people to say, well, at least that's working. And they tend to link market results with who's in the White House, whether that's accurate or not. Over time, that tends to, to dissipate. When the market drops 10%, which it will inevitably do because markets do, no matter who's president, um, when we have these so-called adjustments, then people, then, then we'll hear about a different kind of, you know, the, the Trump down bump. People have lost confidence in the president. Meanwhile, people are going to go about their lives. They're going to get jobs. They're going to buy stuff. They're going to, they're, they're going to transition through, <laughs> through life. You know, demographics make a difference here. And, and uh, I, I just think that, 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 the, the 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 Trump bump um, is is a lot less about the president and his policies, and much more about the the good luck of timing. Um, uh, and uh, you know, let's discuss it in six months. But with every drunk fest, there's a hangover, <laughs> and I you know we've all been through the hangovers. I went through the hangovers of the savings and loan failures of the early '90s family was in land development uh, in Florida, of all places. I, I remember how hurtful that was. Uh, is this, it just strikes me that there's, a, you know, this is a really big coke high and we're going to crash pretty hard if this thing goes down. Am I being paranoid? I mean, the, the question is, where is it? So the the... Not so much when, but... No, no, no. Not no, so no, much no, where no, is it, but when? No, no, I, I mean... Where is it? Because there's the question that I've been asking for a while, and this is the thing that's being dealt with by the Fed, is the case of the missing inflation. There is zero there is, inflation. There is wealth being created, but if that wealth were distributed more broadly, you would see pressures ca- causing inflation in other, part of the eco- other parts of the economy. That is not happening. I am maintaining that, that all that additional wealth is being captured in a very narrow subset. This is the billionaire class. Not to sound too much like Bernie Sanders, but there's no evidence of, of, of where else that, that wealth is going. That being said, if nobody has the additional funds to spend to therefore drive up values of any, uh, any other goods, what happens? Now, the other question is, for that wealth that is being created, where does it go? And there are, there are no clearly obvious tangible investments to be, for that to be put into. Some would argue that infrastructure spending would be a great place and finding any way of moving that wealth into it. And even this is now Donald Trump's supposed world, the public-private investment in infrastructure, not something I necessarily think is a good idea. However, it at least gives that capital a location. It depends on what you do with it. Right. I agree. But right now, the only only safe place for it is Wall Street. But, But Alan Moore, is there validity to what Bernie Jr. here just Put out there? Well, 
in America, there's about 25 trillion, 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 25 trillion dollars in retirement assets. That's where the benefits of uh, a rising stock market are dispersed. It's easy to say, well, it's just the rich guys. Well, wealthier people have more retirement assets than poor people. But it is incredible how many people have a physical financial stake in, uh, in Wall Street. So, so incredible the sheer number that have zero stake in it and just are watching those shifts rise. Well, fair point. Um, and, 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 and you got, you've got an enormous safety net, not, 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 uh, not obviously excluding healthcare, um, that we've just talked about, um, you know, an enormous set of benefits, about half the people pay no federal income tax. And, and then you, but you've got this group that's caught in between the wealthy, they're doing great. The, the, the poor are not doing great, but, but compared to poor people in other countries, it's remarkable what, what poor people in America have. That's, that's a, that, that is not a, a, a defense of the great life that, that they're having, but the, but the amount that we spend, we spend over a trillion dollars a year. Um, uh, in, in so the poor here in America are should be really counting their boss. No, I'm just saying. Well, we'll what say I, if you want to be poor, this country do it in. Poor, Ken is right. Yeah. Absolutely right. But it's the people just outside the, 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 the realm of multiple um, uh, financial assistance <laughs> benefits who are feeling the squeeze. They don't own any stocks. Right. They don't get Obamacare subsidies. Right. They are trying to hold down two jobs and, and trying to make a mortgage. Um, and there's, that is, those are largely Trump voters who are feeling very squeezed, not benefiting from the, 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 Trump, the, bump. the, the, the Trump bump in the marketplace because it's, because they're not up high enough. It's more, not just the 5%. It's probably the upper third of, of the country that, that gets some real benefit from that. So it's this group that's so most that's of them squeezed. also did not vote for Trump. I mean, the, 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 the math on who Trump voters are versus who they aren't. And the Trump voters are far more likely to be the people not seeing gains from the stock market than vice versa. Yeah, but, but no, but, I mean, no, but, that's, that's, what that's, yeah. but that's the irony of this. No, no, no but, but, but again, you know, you're talking about the people in Youngstown, Ohio, Bucks County, Pennsylvania. You know, the the single mom working two jobs to be able to keep a roof, reliable transportation, and clothes on her children. Uh, you, you know, these are blue-collar, lunch-pail Americans that don't have stock and work at companies that not necessarily have 401Ks. You know, it, 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 it's, it, it's something to keep an eye on. But I like the discussion. Anyway, uh, we're going to take a break. When we come back, uh, we're going to kind of combine two things because they kind of tie into one. Uh, in case you haven't noticed, you've been missing Sean Spicer at the 1 o'clock, 2 o'clock hour every day. Well, that's because they haven't been showing any video, uh, video press briefings at the White House since June. We're going to talk about that and more Russia. When we come back, this is Back from Politics Live 
from the National Press Club in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. We'll be back in two minutes. Stay with us. This is Backroom Politics, live on Blog Talk Radio. We'll be back in a few minutes. Stay with us. politics. We'll be back momentarily. Stay with us. This is the best political talk show you've never heard of. It is Backroom Politics Live on Blog Talk Radio. Joining me as they do every Tuesday. For the first time together in one room, we have uh, the man we know as Admiral Ken Carradine. What do others know him as? What? What do others know him as? Nestrovia Kizinski. Sir. Kung Fu. Kung Fu. Okay. There you go. Dan Littner, Esquire, and the Honorable Alan Moore. I'm your moderator, Justin Russell. Hey, 
Uh, in case you missed your little variety show that you would catch every day on C-SPAN around the 1 o'clock, 2 o'clock hour, hoping for the daily press briefings, you've been missing them because they haven't been on the air. Uh, the White House has said, well, because of the president's very hectic travel schedule, he went to Germany for the G20, did that quick short run to France, and all the other things that he's doing. He's just got such a heavy schedule. Well, why bother having daily press briefings? Uh, but still, we have not, the ones that they have had have not been on camera. They've been audio only if they've had recording devices at all. Uh, which brings us up to the larger issue of the fight between the fourth estate, the media, the press corps, and the White House. It, is, it, it appears that it's come to some sort of a head as a result of the recent issues involving Donald Jr. and the Russian meeting at Trump Tower. However, that for many, many months, that didn't happen. Nope, nope nothing happened. Nope. Not a Russian has ever been in Trump Tower. Yeah, the only, Russian, the only thing that's been Russian in there has been the caviar that we eat at Trump's apartment. Mm. But anyway, that being said, there is a very, very strong divide between the media and the White House I can't remember it being this uh, divisive. Alan Moore, I mean, is, is, do you recall there being a, a media tension like this? America once had a vice president for a while whose name was Spiro Agnew. And one of his jobs as, as, pres- telling us a story. as president, as uh, vice president, was to just go trash the press which he did constantly. And they, these wordsmiths would come up with lines Nattery. like the nattering nabobs of negativism and other, negativity. Uh, <laughs> other, other, we'll have to check that one. Um, uh, it may well be right. Um, but we agree on the nattering nabobs, whatever a nabob is. Um, and, and, uh, uh, there's, there's a constant stress between White Houses and the press. The the Obama administration was famously known for just not giving much to to the press. They would have daily briefings, and they simply wouldn't have very much to share. At least they didn't have to come back a day later and constantly change what they said or say – gee, I haven't talked to the president about that. We'll get back to you and then never get back to them. Um, they would at least go through the motion of coming up with some kind of an answer. Um, it, it, it's the, there's something that's a little, that, that's kind of delicious, I have to say, um, at, at the, the big name, highly paid, very visible White House correspondents who make it their business both to try to get information but also to posture on television during during these press briefings to suddenly not have them anymore. I'm not saying it's good for the country at all, um, but but I do find it sort of amusing um, that these folks who rely on the daily press briefing and the opportunity to embarrass whoever is uh, at the podium uh, if this is not new to the Trump administration, they've, they've, do you agree with this position? They, you know, it just, it, it, it doesn't gross me out. It, they'll try it for a while. They'll, they'll try to figure out if they think 
this is helping them or hurting them. If, if, if I'm working for the president and I'm out trying to talk to the press on camera, it's not going to, it's going to be very hard for me and it's not going to help the white house. If I'm simply saying again and again, I don't have anything for you on that. I have not heard that. Not talk to the president about that. You understand that we're in the press club, by the way. I do understand we're in the press club. It doesn't bother me at all. Um, and 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 uh, if if you've got nothing to say, how visible do you want to be in not saying it? So well, it's a matter of transparency. If I have nothing to say, I can say you know what we like we and we've heard every press secretary going back to Reagan say the same thing. Like I covered in yesterday's briefing, we said this, we're standing by this position. There's nothing wrong with that, but at least it shows the effort. You're looking at me, Admiral Ken, like I got two heads. No, no, I was looking at Alan like he's got two heads. How so? Because uh, I completely disagree with everything you just said. Wow. I, 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 you know what? Here's the deal. You know, for, for an administration that likes using the words fake news so much. They produce a lot of it. They produce a lot of it. And what's more importantly, what is the best defense against uh, having fake news? Hey, it was on video. I never said that. It was kind of like this afternoon when I came in. I told you I was quitting the show. And then turn around and say, I didn't say that. Yeah, by the way, not funny. Dude. Yeah, but, yeah, but it, funny. it made my point. And the point is. It's still not funny. Dude. <laughs> but it, it, the point is that, you know, the, the, the flow of information out of the White House should be such that uh, it can be held up as proof that we're being transparent. But the biggest issue, and, and, and Dan just made a great point, is that they're not transparent. They do create fake news. That they, they are incapable of basically maintaining a, a consistent story. This whole thing about Donald Trump Jr. and the, and the, the, the meeting in, the, in Trump Tower with the Russians starting out talking about adoption uh, and, as a, and then it transforming into something else. I mean, three different story changes in less than three days. That's ridiculous. And when you take the press out of the picture, I think it impacts the ability for the American people, all the American people, to hear all the truth. Yeah, and that's the as Dan Lipner, the press isn't just a idle third party here. Yes, much of media can make money, but that's not the only thing. Like there are things that affect people's lives both domestically and internationally, and. To this White House's credit, for about 15 seconds, they did something kind of interesting. They had their little Skype news feed that they would bring in outlets that could not afford to have somebody stationed in Washington, D.C. 365 days a year and allow them to ask questions. I thought that was kind of interesting. Unfortunately, that played out with with narrow, sometimes creepy right-wing news outlets. But it was still – I still kind of dug the idea. But let me – I mean, let me, let me just jump in on that because, you know, one of the things I was talking to – I made it known. I'm, I'm, I'm an active member here at the National Press Club. I enjoy it. I enjoy my my colleagues in, in the media. Food's good. Uh, food's really good. Come on by. It's uh, semi-private. Anyway, that being said, I was talking to a friend of mine who didn't ha- – who was not White House press corps, as I put my fingers up in air quotes. They – were invited to a press briefing in the press room. They got there, they got shuffled to the back, and press secretary walks out, Josh Ernst walks out, says X, Y, Z, and he starts banging out the questions, goes to the usual gang of 12, and then bounces out. Uh, and the, my friend, the reporter, goes, why the hell did I come here only to sit here and just, why, because I could sit in the briefing room and said I covered it? 
it, it, there was nothing of any big substance that was done. And by the time it took me to get in through security, do the briefing, come out, I could have had it done by watching it on TV. It, it, the, I guess the basis of my point is, Alan Moore, going back to your original issue, is is this press briefing more to satisfy the raging prima donna egos of White House correspondents? Or is there a legitimate fight that says that the press briefing daily is a requirement for the fourth estate? Well, so it's all of the above, right? There's there's definitely uh, this notion of, of ego and visibility and self-promotion. Fine. There's also legitimate information that should be exchanged in a, in a public place. What what the what the let let let's acknowledge that what the White House has done of late is to send somebody out, and even Sean Spicer showed up yesterday for the first time in a while, and talks to the press. They can record his voice. They can't film him. It, it it's you know they're trying this, they're trying that, but. But I would say, speaking to your point about the guy talking about how Josh Ernst did it, he was smooth. He'd come out, he'd give his prepared remarks, he'd take a couple of questions, and then he was gone. These guys, A, there's, there, there are more subjects that they got asked about that they can't really respond to, one. Um, two, they have a president who is tweeting virtually daily. We would not hear from President Obama except in very closely scripted events. He wasn't doing press conferences um, and, and wasn't doing, uh, doing any interviews. President Trump used to like press conferences. He used to like interviews. Now he only likes the occasional interview with, with a particular correspondent where he thinks he's going to get good treatment. But we lo- I would say ugly and, and painful and disturbing as it is, we know more about what pre- this president is thinking than we've known about what any other president has thought for in my lifetime. That turns out that- to be really scary because <laughs> the stuff he's thinking about is just mortifying. But Obama, the president, president of John Podesta, was at the G20. President, <laughs> president Obama, he he kept his cards very close. And he kept the people around him quiet. The other way we learn about this president, in addition to his tweets, is that uh, that the people around him, because they're fighting all the time, are are making their own independent moves to talk to different press people, and information comes out. Is it a good way to do it? No, but it's remarkably effective in letting the country know. What's going on? But there's a book that's coming out, in, 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 and I guess this will lead into my question, but there's a book coming out that describes the first few months of the Trump White House where there were literally staffers during the campaign and into the White House that were literally taking TV interviews to talk about their issues. On Basically, the meeting with Trump would happen through a TV interview. And they wouldn't allow face-to-face because they were uncomfortable. He got ugly. It was just a bizarre situation. But I guess my, this leads up to the question is, are we putting too much of an expectation on Donald Trump? Are we putting too much pressure on Donald Trump 
That's not a big job, though. Yeah. Well, no, 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 no. I, I mean, you know, let's be honest. I mean, finish your question. Are we putting too much press pressure on Trump versus what we've done with presidents in the past? I mean, look, there's always been a issue with. I mean, Bush never had a a real big, large love affair with the media. And Obama had his issues with the media, even though a good chunk of them loved him. He, there were some out there that were not exactly, you know, following in his life fart cinnamon rolls weight. Loved him during the campaign. That changed quickly. Uh, the first six months of, oh, uh, of the I Obama agree. administration, one of my favorite lines was, the people in the White House communications office seem shocked that this much violent vitriol can be directed at somebody whose name isn't Clinton. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but, but I, I go back to my point. Are we putting too much of an expectation on Donald Trump? Admiral, can you say I, that? I don't think so. And, Why? And, and the reason I don't think so is because Donald Trump opened himself up to this. He did. President no, 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 no. No president has basically went directly to the American people uh, via social media outlet like Donald Trump has. Well, we've Donald never had the access no, to social no, no, media. No, no, like that's this. not true. The Obama administration had Twitter. They had Twitter for the last they had, maybe they had, four years, but, maybe but the second term. Donald Trump, Donald Trump has done enough tweeting that could match any. I'll do anybody in four years. The point that I'm making here is he opened that door, and so he set the expectation by opening that door. And now that it's now that it's there, you know, I think he's, this this administration is going. So you're saying that Twitter is his Pandora's box? No, I, I, I definitely it is. I mean, I think his inability to tell the truth and his inability to tell the truth using something like Twitter is his Pandora's box. That's the thing. So Teddy Roosevelt referred to it as the bully pulpit. When the president speaks, everyone listens. And the extent to which this president has squandered whatever goodwill comes in at the beginning. And he squandered it with a quickness that can hardly be matched by anyone in American history. Reckless abandon doesn't even come close. And the idea that this, this being able to directly tweet to the American people, if you could look at the president beyond his 33 to 36% and say, I trust what he is saying, that would actually be something that was kind of amazing. Obama's use of Twitter was mostly for the pardoning of turkeys at Thanksgiving. Yeah, yeah the, the feel-good Merry kind of, Christmas. The yeah. feel-good kind of stuff. Or the, the great consoler. Or when, they, when the, when the uh, same-sex marriage ruling came down. Right. Those kind of things. There weren't really policy things or even deep thoughts. This president could have, if he started actually paying attention to anything of substance, in the process, could have used that as a conduit to communicate with the American people to bring attention to something that may have been missed. Unfortunately, each time he has gone down a rabbit hole, to both Ken and, and Alan's points, that rabbit hole has been a foxhole. And he said, by the way, there's a raccoon down there. It's so... It's not time out. No, I don't even know what that analogy means. No, the, 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 the point being is you can't... I don't know either, and I don't, don't want, want to know. know. I don't want to go down that rabbit hole or foxhole or or whatever is in the hole. Alan Moore, I, you know, I I think this is this is a, a sorting out process. Every every White House uh, has uh, has to sort out what works and what doesn't work, and and how much uh, 
uh, <laughs> of the kimono to open up to uh, the outside world of what's going on in the White House. This president is notorious for changing his mind um, and 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 paying no attention whatsoever to the fact that 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 he uh, says things that are known to be untrue. Um, and and uh, if he didn't know it the first time, he'll know it the second time. And then the third time, he may pivot 180 degrees. Uh, he himself said, you know, there's nobody who can properly stand at the podium every day and represent my thinking because they're not me. And and yet I believe that the president, as far as I know, has never once set foot in the press briefing room. I'm not saying that he should go into the press briefing room and do a daily brief. It would sure be nice if every few weeks he would take questions from the press. Um, what it, it, At it, least the some, press that wasn't Fox or Christian some, Broadcasting. Some, yeah, I mean, from the press writ large. Um, trashing the press the way he does is not healthy. It has done one good thing. It has made sloppy press people be a little more careful. But by and large... Um, it, it, it is negative. It's not good in America if people think that everybody in the press is making stuff up constantly, regularly, and consistently. I have it's a, not true, I, and it's not healthy. I have, I have an ongoing Twitter um, exchange with my, my friends and family back in Texas and Alabama, and a good half of them are, are diehard or probably a little less diehard Trump Trumpsters. Trumpsters. And then there's some folks that are just, you know, just so far against him, they can't even string together a coherent uh, Twitter sentence. Right. But it's an ongoing, an ongoing deal. And what's really interesting among the people who are still supporting Trump is they want to blame everything that's gone on on the media. And I, and I, I on a regular basis, saying you can't blame this on the media. It's just like if someone's sitting in your kitchen and a rat runs by everybody's going to turn and look at the rat. I mean, I'm sorry. There's some things you just, and you can't blame the rat for being there. I'm sorry. But it, it, it does, it does strike me though, that whether or not this administration, this president has had a longer adjustment period to being president uh, with the media than other administrations. No. Previous. And that makes sense. He, he, he wasn't a politician. I mean, he well, not only wasn't a politician, but came from the world of entertainment and reality. You, you would expect him to be right on top of no, working. No, absolutely, absolutely not. not. Oh, oh. And this is so from my my political life. One of the scariest things I ever hear is when somebody comes to me and approaches political communications from a corporate communication side of things. Uh, <laughs> and the, the, I was a press agent in Hollywood. And the, not to say that that stuff can't get ugly, but the biggest difference is the bad guys shoot back when you're talking politics. There, there is somebody with an interest that has often no issues with raising that immediately and catching you when you do something wrong. Somebody on the Real Housewives that says something wrong, okay, then that's going to be on the gossip column as opposed to the front page of the New York Times, i.e. the infinite list of denials of the of Russia well, meetings and now the emails that said otherwise. Wouldn't it have been better? I mean, we, we talked about the, the, the Donald Trump Jr. and the New York Times having it beforehand while he released it. We still don't know why. But we've also seen that begin to unravel. Um is 
Alan Moore, is this a situation where, particularly with the Donald Trump Jr. situation, that the media is just continuing to add fuel to that fire? Well, are, are we making are we making more of it than what it is of 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 that particular story yeah. of the the, the yeah. Donald Trump Jr. We don't know everything that's there. That's why Bob Mueller is in his job. And we're going to know everything before we're done. If I'm the Trump administration, if I'm Reince Priebus in the White House, I'm going to get a blessing from the president to say to everybody in the White House, please review your, your, your filings on any meetings you ever had with Russians or anybody from a former Soviet state or any other potential enemy of America. Make sure nothing is missing. The, 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 the worst thing about the, the Russia stuff... is isn't a Euro reported. It, it, you know, it, the, the, the worst thing about the Russia stuff is the denials over a year or more and the 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 new information that keeps dribbling out every day reviving the story every day raising new questions about the links that existed here now i remember watergate i remember a long history of Denial and denial and denial. Well, what about took what was months. going on? Yep, it did. I know it did. But you know, I don't. I don't want to overdraw the parallel. All I'm saying is that when you when you are hearing denials steadily, steady and angry denials, and then you see bits and pieces of information that that creep out that undercut the denial it's natural in our history and our experience to think what is actually there and well, I, I don't Bradley, to, ben bradley called it the non-denial denial and i don't mean to pick on president nixon although he's a he's a big target president clinton had his own long history of denials and then information would creep out um it it it's the kind of thing that that I don't want to believe that there was collusion, but there might have been collusion, and if there was collusion, Absolutely. I'd rather I would rather I would rather know about it sooner rather than later but because we, so much damage is done in the but, process but, of dragging. Let me, out. Devil's, let me play devil's advocate here for a second. I mean, everybody knows that I'm not a huge fan of the Trump administration. I've not been a fan from the beginning, but. Are we not doing to President Trump and Don Jr. and Jared Kushner, are we not prosecuting them through the media instead of letting due process and Director Mueller do his job and the investigative authorities on the Senate and the House side do their jobs? If not for the media, where would the process be right now? Thank you very much. I was going to say exactly the same thing. If not for the media, we would not – we would know half the things that are going on. And, 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 And I'm sorry. The fact that that uh, that Donald Trump Jr. released his the 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 emails or the, his side of the story hours before the New York Times did is not a coincidence. I'm sorry. So are we prosecuting them in the media? No. What they are doing is is not subscribing to the belief that there's no such things as secrets, just things you don't know yet. And that's where we are. I'll beg for forgiveness if you catch me doing wrong. 
Okay, but, you know, again. I don't think we're, just to your point, I don't think that, that we have reached a conclusion. No. About what has happened here. We happen to know because of the media. We would eventually know with or without the media, in my opinion, because Bob Mueller is out there and there's a bunch of data and a bunch of witnesses and a bunch of people. But the, but we, but the whole country knows, thanks to the media. I think that's a good thing. Um, I, all I'm saying is I think this stuff is going to come out regardless. But what the, 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 we haven't – there are plenty of people who have made up their minds about, about collusion – I have not. I don't think the people around this table have made up their minds about that. But we have a lot of questions, and they're legitimate questions, and, and they need answers. And we're going to look to, to to Mueller to come up with those answers. And I'm yeah. sorry, if, I, it I if it weren't for the media and Jim Comey, there wouldn't be a Bob Mueller. I'm sorry. Well, <laughs> I believe that. No, no. <laughs> if, it weren't for, if, 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 if Trump hadn't had not fired Jim Comey, um, this this yeah. this would be taking a different path, but, I mean, but it would be Jim Comey's investigation. All of the, which a uh, free and independent press. This is one of those things that that as as a democratic ideal, we talk about internationally, and for some of, some of the authoritarian powers that are coming in. The and let me be clear, Dan. The press actually it plays a role for all the onerousness and ugliness that the press can also agree. create. There is value in that message. And Dan, let me be clear. I'm not questioning the role of the media. I, you know, we are the fourth estate. That is that is a given. Without the fourth estate, there is no democratic process that truly happens. What are the first, second, and third estates, by the way? Oh, those would be the the three branches of government: the executive, the legislative, and the judiciary. Where we just happen to be part of the fourth. And by the way, it's a good restaurant. Located in downtown Washington, D.C. <laughs> no, I mean, part, that's part, true. Part, part of the, the, the right to a, a trial, a public a trial. So, in order for it to be publicly recorded by a independent third party, that, that would be the press. Right. So, by the way, you sometimes think I'm just a dancing bear in a, a, a big, entertaining gorilla. No, no, I know for my wedding, you're not. <laughs> I'm not a dancing gorilla. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but, but that being said, I mean, is there not legitimacy? In, it's dangerous. It's dangerous. Yeah, there we go. There we go. Inside, inside jokes always play well on radio, guys. So here's the question, though. I mean, I, I, and I understand, and I understand, and I'm glad that we have the media that we have today. It just seems that there is almost a chum-induced shark-like feeding frenzy. That happens every time a tweet comes out, every time an email is leaked out. And I just think that we're, are we not doing Mueller's investigation a disservice by having the 24-hour news cycle on every network well, basically running the investigation through media? Well, that's not true. So, the, the, I mean, consumers can follow the nonsense and that goes on and, and – the, I mean, the Daily Show for a while would show clips of reporters sitting in there while the camera is on them, futzing with their phones to rattle off the latest rumor that they hadn't done any real reporting on because they have airtime to kill. Right. So there is some credibility to saying the 24-hour news cycle may be going down and talking true substance of issues, and it's worth noting some interesting things have actually made it through the, the, the Trump administration. 
the fiduciary duty for financial advisors is, was actually okayed. That, that was a big shocker. But because this White House can't get out of its own way and say, by the way, this is something that helps normal Americans and their retirement plans, yeah. they couldn't ma- manage to mention this without Donald Trump talking about his golf courses or something else ridiculous. That, okay. that chum, uh, like shark feeding frenzy, uh, would not be there if uh, these guys could manage to tell the truth more than three or four days in a row. Is, 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 that, is that what's giving us this problem that we have between the White House and the media and the feeding frenzy we're seeing? It's, it's a result of tell us the truth and we don't feed on the chum. Well, the truth is not always friendly to, to this administration. It's just that, that history has shown um, that, that truth early is better than truth late, and truth late is usually inevitable. So get it out. Deal with it. Um, back to Nixon. He couldn't let the truth out. Everybody is critical of the way he handled the Watergate break-in. They should have come clean. His problem was there was a long history of other illegal activity of which the Watergate break-in was, was just, just a just part of. Part. Right. And to... Thank you to our friends at CNN for that. Thank <laughs> you, Jake Tapper. To acknowledge, to acknowledge... Sorry about that. Um... To, to acknowledge um, uh, that uh, and, and, and be fully forthcoming on the Watergate break-in put at risk a longer history of, of other illegal behavior. And that's what makes yeah. the, the well, meeting with Donald Trump Jr. so interesting. Was that a one-off well, Let me ask, let me ask this question. Oh, right. Hold on, Dan. Hold on. Well, right. Let me ask this question, though. I want to ask this question to Ellen. What I'm hearing you say is that if Nixon had come clean about Watergate and said, yeah, you know what, we got caught. It was stupid. Mea culpa. It goes away. He finishes his second term. No, I'm saying, he, first of all, he, he had to have plausible deniability. He wouldn't say, my fault. He would have said, those idiots in my and name I fired them. did something stupid. And, and, and I fired them all. Right. The, the, it would not have gone away. Uh, because then the question would be, well, who paid them? Who, right. And who then was the whole issue them? of creep and everything came and, up. And right. there was a long right. history. So they were, they were concealing a history of bad actions and bad behaviors. And, and, and it sprung up when they, when they caught the, the, the Watergate burglars. But there was this ugly, nasty, illegal history that they were trying to conceal. Right. I don't, I'm not saying that there is such an ugly uh, history in the case of, of Trump and, and but that goes to the relationship with Russians. But that goes to my point. Well, they're investigating. Should we as media, should we even as commentators focus on, you know, putting pressure on the White House for tax reform, putting pressure on fixing health care, Putting, pre- putting pressure on maintaining no. a strong economy. Well, well the, the, the rest of the world doesn't stop because these things are going on, but also no. What we see here in America, but, we don't see on BBC but, but, but or Freight 24 or any of the other news networks around the world. When scandals break, you 
certainly see. Not, oh, come on, not like this. I, I mean, literally, I have seen scandals on BBC before, and it's nowhere what near. Was the, the Israeli prime minister that was just taken out for his own financial scandals, and it actually is Omer, was the he's in jail. Yeah, but, but, uh, yeah, but they, they, they didn't have the 24-hour feeding frenzy. Like well, I'm, not, well, well, I'm well, not an expert well, on Israeli media, but I'm going to go out and out live and go, that was probably the first story. It was a big story when they did it, but they let the, that was after the investigation happened that the, that the Justice Ministry had said, we're putting out an arrest warrant. Here's the result of our findings. They published the findings, and then the media went back crazy. But again, this is part of the... So... For example, the issues with the G20 and Russia. Hypothetically, some of the things that we think we kind of know, some of which from the Trump family, Eric Trump saying, Russian money financed most of our golf courses. Hey, thanks for telling us. Um, so where is that in all I, these reporting I, I forms? Hate you. I hate you for bringing that up. Um, Damn you. You just destroyed my argument. Where, where, it's not where, actually what he said, but yeah. go ahead. So, but so where, you still may have a hope. There are only four of us in the room. There's eight. There's now eight of those people right. in the room. And, and this is in the process of correcting the lie they were lying along Does the way. Does the pain go away if we find that the White House starts telling the truth? Or have, are they? Is that ship sailed? Is that too far gone? Well, I, I, would, I would love to see that happen. I would love to. I would love to basically live that dream. For months now, I've been quoting, "Shut up and govern." Shut up and govern. I would love for them to basically stop the the BS, stop the tweeting, stop count, stop stepping. Stop, hang on, stop stepping on their own story uh, within days of, 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 of publishing something. I would love to see that happen. But to Alan's point, what if they can't? So this is the this is the real nightmare scenario, and that's for all of us. Well, let me that, hold on before you go down that road. I want to ask I want to ask one question. Is there any way that this administration has any credibility from now for the next four years? Well, it, it, to, to, to Ken's point, I think we would all love to see them clean up their act. And that starts with the president changing his personality and behavior. So, <laughs> let's not, you know, let's not get all excited that this is around yeah, the bridge of heaven. Right. 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 around an idea that, right. that they're, they've really been making mistakes after mistakes. They've lost their credibility. The president has got to stop tweeting. They have to really get their stuff together before they say anything. And miracle of miracles, they, they, they could start doing that. It would take a very long time, not necessarily four years. It would take a long time because right now, before people would start to actually think it was real and start believing them. It wouldn't. It, it, it could. It, it would take at least as long as it's taken for them to lose all credibility. Right now, everything you hear from the White House, White House spokespeople, and senior uh, White House officials is met with skepticism. People, and I'm not just talking about the press, but the public who's paying attention tends not to believe what they say. Sometimes they're speaking truth. We don't know that. There's no confidence that they are speaking the truth. That's a horrendous position to be in, not just for us domestically, but with regard to overseas. When, when we talk about what we might or might not do about North Korea, 
or Syria or sanctions on Russia or Iran, no one knows whether we're speaking the truth, whether we have a considered, thoughtful opinion that's not going to change. That's a terrible place for America, American leadership. Um, it could turn, I don't expect it to turn around, but if it did turn around, it would, it would take a fundamental change in behavior and quite a bit of time for skeptical listeners here and elsewhere, uh, here and across the world, to start believing the new Trump White House. Dan, you agree? I do absolutely agree. And I'll take it a step further. It's borderline dangerous. Um, again, the, the Trump administration has been blessed with having to deal with issues that are mostly of their own creation, absent North Korea. And even then, people far smarter than this White House have been scratching their heads on what you do for with North Korea. But what do you do when something actually happens? What if North Korea actually does land one of these missiles on something that we care about? What is that response? And can't, will the world look to the, to the White House uh, press room with confidence that what comes from it is, in fact, true? Is it a matter of the, is it the communication staff or is it the man himself? Both. I mean, when you look at it, I mean, I'll give you a great example. Was the media too harsh on the president when he looked at Mrs. Macron, the first lady of France, and said, wow, I forget what the exact... It was misogynist, it was crass, it was also not You're in great shape. Yes, you're in great shape. It was crass, misogynistic nonsense, but it was still both of the nonsense category. That doesn't change the something? Is is that something that the press should have jumped on, Alan? Of course they're going to jump on it. It's newsworthy. Well, yes, you're not going to ignore it. Now, does that mean it changes our relationship with uh, France or the rest of the country? No, the president is is reminded still again that he's got to zip his lip because his instincts get him into trouble or embarrassing to him and his family. The rat run into the kitchen again. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, I'm not going to blame. I'm not going to blame the right. press for for reporting it. All right. Um, Very good. I didn't hear anybody talk about it for hours and hours uh, on any talk oh, they, show. Oh, no, you have to watch the last 10 minutes. And speaking of the last 10 minutes, it's the last 10 minutes of our show, uh, my favorite part of the show, where we talk about things we did not cover, we might have missed. Admiral Ken, what do we miss this week? Wow. Um, so the, uh, the Fletcher, I'm sorry, the Fitzgerald uh, U.S. Navy ship had a collision a few weeks ago. Um, Six, uh, six sailors were killed. Uh, among those injured was the other uh, commanding officer of the ship. Uh, the investigation is is going forward. In the meantime, the uh, the uh, the CO has been temporarily relieved uh, while he undergoes uh, uh, health care uh, to uh, to attend to his injuries. Uh, I think though um, there will be more coming from this as the, the days go by. Uh, the Navy has been uh, pretty diligent in uh, putting out only. Uh, a modicum of information while they while they continue the uh, the investigation, but there's things are coming out in, in bits and pieces. What do, what do we miss, Dan Littner? In the world of government, can do good things. The Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, uh, a rule went through for all of you who have ever had disputes with your credit cards, uh, and you see that mandatory arbitration clause if you ever go through the fine print that is sent to you every 
uh, year or so when they say these are the rules and regulation, that mandatory arbitration clause is now null and void. Uh, as a rule, you now have a right to take your credit card company to court, um, which also opens up class actions and things like that for um, occasionally, you know, small small fees, you know, it can be pennies, but pennies multiplied by millions can suddenly start to add up. So that's a, a pro-consumer change. Alan Moore, what do we miss? Or pro, uh, pro tort lawyer uh, change. Lawyers and, save the uh, world. <laughs> we, we can make we can make uh, lawyers we, save we, the world. We can make credit cards uh, scarcer and more expensive. Not that that would necessarily not, be not, a bad thing. Not cheap. <laughs> yeah, we'll make it more expensive. Interest is uh, so usually. And I am not a fan of mandatory arbitration from from experience. Um, so. So we've talked about health care. There's talk about health reform. We've got a big spending bill. But we have this other thing called the debt limit. And, and the, the, the big issue that's going to consume Washington um, between now and the end of September, early October, is are we going – what is it going to take for us to uh, increase the amount of money that the U.S. government can legally – borrow to pay for its its current and former um, uh, activities. Guess we're, what we're going to talk about after the August recess. We're spending, we, 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 all, we already know about, we already owe America does close to $20 trillion um, uh, to uh, ourselves and people around the world um, in accumulated uh, deficit spending. Um, and there's, through an anomaly of law, we have to authorize the borrowing of that in a separate piece of legislation that has to get through the Senate, which means it needs 60 votes. Um, and, and we are already beginning to see the, the doomsday fears. Uh, it's showing up on the front pages of the newspaper of the major newspapers. We got Still below the phone, so we're saying. this problem. Um, will we pass a bill that simply straight is a straightforward so-called clean debt limit increase as many uh as many prefer um that simply says we're going to raise the level of, uh, of of accumulated borrowing that's legal or are we going to try to attach conditions the, some republicans want to attach spending constraints or revenue changes some democrats want to have their own spending issues you want our votes you're going to have to give us something and and unfortunately in recent years we we have we have increasingly added things to debt limit bills. Um, Republicans do it. Democrats do it. Um, get ready. Hang on to your. Uh, really, we have nothing uh, to your talk, talk about. Sequestration is <laughs> the closest we came right. to it, and that was a disaster. Uh, well, it depends how you look at it. It, it the making sure defenseless part of it, it made 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 everyone hurt, and it was a disaster. No, no, it was a disaster because the. Theory was is bring everybody to the position that we bargained from. Right. Yeah. yeah. Look at uh, in the in the continuation of nothing is sacred to this White House. President Trump today, when discussing the Senate's health care bill initiative, came out and said 60 votes is stupid. We should only have 51, and that should be the rule. Uh, they don't the even have 51 that, votes. That's, huh? that's the really stupid part. What's that? They don't even have 51 votes. <laughs> but, again, and nothing is sacred. What 40 votes is all we need. <laughs> that's right. 
We can do this on 25, rewrite the rules, crazy. (laughs) What bugs me is, is the fact that what has kept the Senate in a minimum security insane asylum, separate from the rest of the general maximum population, maximum security insane asylum that we know as Washington politics today, is there's a certain honor amongst the senators, there's a certain decorum, and there's a set of rules that are specific to the Senate. Uh, Alan, you've lived in the Senate. Have you ever seen a president come out and say, hey, screw 60, do 51? Well, no, I haven't. But it was, remember, it was uh, not very many years ago when Harry Reid changed the rules from 60 to 51 or, or a simple majority on what it would take to get executive uh, branch appointees through or uh, judges up through courts of appeals. But now they've yes. used it in closure. Then, then it was then it was the, the 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 current Senate who changed the rule with regard to Supreme Court nominees, and that's the way that Judge, Justice Gorsuch was uh, approved for the Supreme Court. So we've 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 taken away the 60 uh, vote requirement um, for appointments all the way through and including the Supreme Court over the last six years, and. It's not illogical that people would then say, gee, we tossed it out for uh, judges and executive branch appointees. Maybe it's time to rethink uh, it in the legislative branch. I hated it. I hated it when Harry Reid did it. I trashed Harry Reid up one side and down the other. I said, watch, our party out, watch, watch out what, what you have started here. Well, our, our party did what any party would do under those circumstances. Hillary Clinton and the, the Democrats would have done it if they had been in power. Um, there's just no. No, 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 so well, the question is how that responds. Dan, but, but Dan, I, I, here's the reality. It's all bad. Yeah, Dan, but the question reality. is how that responds. Here's reality. We're, the we're president holds nothing sacred of our basic line of government. And it was proved yet again today in a tweet that went out three hours ago. But he, I shouldn't be shocked. This but president, it just president with, with three to four out of ten voters thinking he's doing an eh job. It's not. Wouldn't be surprising for me if he actually said, "Yeah, forty percent of the senators voting that should be enough. I can govern with that." This president already talked about reducing the number. It wasn't just today. Right. He did that a couple of months ago. Yeah, but he was along yeah. with it. Yeah. That's true. <laughs> anyway, we gotta go. He's been, Guys, he's been consistent. We gotta go. I gotta close out on behalf of uh, Alan Moore, Dan Littner, Admiral Ken Carradine. I'm your host, Wondery Justin Russell. We will be back next week. Hopefully, again, for the National Press Club. Good show today. Love being together with you guys. Uh, We will be back live next week. Uh, You can follow us on our Twitter handle, at Backroom Politics. You can follow us at our website, www.backroompolitics.org. And soon, you'll be able to to find us on video. We'll have more news as we get closer to that date. But on behalf of the entire roundtable, thanks for joining us. Hope you'll join us again. And stay active and political and be civil about it. Take care, America. Bye-bye. This is Backroom Politics.